Hello for everybody that is tuning into us now. We are going to be launching into our sixth installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. So welcome as everybody filters in. See the numbers are climbing. Hope everybody's off to a good start to their day or afternoon, depending where you are in the world joining us today. For those that aren't familiar with our Phenotip Speaker Series, we've been hosting this since the summer as part of the pandemic, just being able to connect with people throughout the world so that we can continue our education and continue connecting with each other and learning from each other. So happy to see people joining into the live stream right now. I'm your host, Kira Deneen, and today we're going to be talking about the adoption and outcome of digital tools in clinical genetics. And our special guest is a digital champion, Dr. Charles Shaw-Smith. He is a clinical geneticist at Royal Devon in NHS. Thank you for joining us, everybody that's filtering in. We appreciate you joining us today as we talk about the adoption and outcome of digital tools in clinical genetics. We have a lot of questions that I want to have answered by Dr. Shaw-Smith because he is certainly an expert in this field. So for people that aren't familiar with our format of the show here, we're going to be doing a 40 minute interview. So just me and Dr. Shaw Smith talking about these topics of adop adoption and outcome of the digital tools in clinical genetics. And then we're going to have questions from you in the audience. So throughout the webinar today, you can put your questions into the Q&A box. So that's that bottom um, option on, in your Zoom right now. So if you have questions, feel free to pop them in throughout our conversation. Then at the end, we're going to answer those questions. So if you see a question that you're like, I really want this to be answered, certainly vote for that to be higher up on the list and we'll go through that. So feel free to be submitting that. Even if you have questions now, you can certainly start adding to that. So for those that aren't familiar with Phenotips, I wanted to mention that they are the sponsor of this speaker series. They're the world's first genomic health record system. They have software and services that ease genetic professionals workflow. Tools include pedigree builders, standardized symptom capture and diagnostic insights. Many of us that work in the field know that electronic health records are not built for genetics. So Phenotips is filling in this gap for us by providing a complete suite for genetic, genetic medicine. So again, in light of the pandemic, Phenotips has sponsored this series so that we can continue having these conversations and you know, improve our workflow especially with digital tools. So as I mentioned, I'm Kira Deneen, your host for this webinar. I'm also the host of DNA Today, which is a genetics podcast and radio show. Last year, we won the People's Choice Podcast Award for the best 2020 science and medicine podcast. So we're really excited to have that. And if you find conversation today or at any of the other webinars interesting, you could check out the show. It has over 140 episodes in the last nine years. So, and I'm also a prenatal genetic counselor, so recently joined the field there. And as I mentioned, our guest today with us is Dr. Charles Shaw-Smith. He is a clinical geneticist at Royal Devon NHS for the last 10 years. He has an extensive research background, over 75 papers that focus on two main areas, chromosomal disorders of childhood and genetic causes of congenital malformations, specifically focusing on the GI tract. And one of the reasons we have him on for this installment of Phenotip Speaker Series is because of his interest in electronic patient records and digital tools. So thank you so much, Dr. Shaw-Smith, for coming on the show today and being able to connect with all of us and share your insight. My pleasure. Thank you for the invite. 
So I thought we could start our conversation talking about how the pandemic has changed the scope of digital tools and what changes you've seen in the last year or so as we've all been adapting and a lot of us suddenly adapting to using more digital tools. Uh, yeah, in, interesting question. It's been uh, it's been an extraordinary year in our service. So we we spent a couple of years leading up to a go live of a full electronic patient record in our hospital trust, which was provided by Epic, which is of course an American company. And uh, as they do with all, all hospitals in which they uh, help to install electronic patient records, a lot of preparation went into that. And our go live date was um, set for June, 2020. Um, but of course in February, 2020, or February, March time, um, uh, the pandemic started, and um, there, there were some. Uh, there, there was some. Uh, no, I wasn't personally involved, but there were some very difficult discussions in the trust about what to do, and and they just looking at all the data and all the possible options. It was decided to to put the date back to October twenty twenty. And alongside this, the trust also was in the process of taking the decision to switch to using a voice recognition software system for um, dictation of letters and other clinical notes. So we, we've had those, and we did go live in October 2020. And I, uh, I, as you said, I am something of a digital champion. So maybe my my um, <laughs> my opinion should be taken with a pinch of salt. But I'm 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 delighted with it. It does present, as you said, some very particular issues with clinical genetics. I'd be happy, very happy to talk about some of those. But overall, there have been no major disasters. I think it's been a successful rollout. The voice recognition has worked. And of course, the, alongside all of that, there's been impact on the way we run our service because of the pandemic. And we've been doing, as, as elsewhere, a lot of our consults have been switched to telephone or video consult. So it, it's been an extraordinary, a really extraordinary year um, <laughs> but we're, we're still here um, providing genetic services in Devon and Cornwall. Yeah, certainly. I mean, pandemic has changed a lot for so many people and knowing that you, it sounds like you already had those plans in place before the pandemic happened that yeah, you were well looking before. to switch to those digital tools. And so it just got switched a little bit in terms of, you know, delayed yeah. in terms of rolling it out. But um, just with the experience of that, um, any like, tips or advice of just going through that for people that are looking to do like the same in their healthcare systems? Um, yes, so um, about a year in advance of the go live date. So more than a year actually, probably eight about February, March, 2019, we set up a steering group within our department. And that steering group had representation from all the stakeholders in the department, including the the consultants, the genetic counselors, and the, ad, the, admin, the admin team, absolutely critical in this because the admin is so complex for, for all our appointments. Um, and we, we held monthly meetings and we, we tried to plan ahead as best we could and to anticipate difficulties. And for example, one thing that actually went reasonably well, I think because we, um, we anticipated the issue and tried to plan for it was the simple fact that, that 
within our service, we, we do outreach clinics in a very, in really quite a large number of peripheral hospitals. So maybe 20, 25 hospitals, some of which are very small cottage hospital type affairs in Devon and Cornwall, which is um, the region that we serve. Uh, Cornwall, you'll note, is hosting Joe Biden in June for the G7 summit. I don't know if you, know, if you noted that. <laughs> so it's gonna be famous. Um, that is certainly a timely thing to mention today, yes. <laughs> what, we, um, what we were worried about was whether we'd, be, we'd have access to Wi-Fi, something as simple as that, because we, you know, those peripheral hospitals don't necessarily provide you with connection to the internet on your own, um, your own hardware. So, so through a variety of means, we, we had to ensure that we'd have Wi-Fi access in all of these places, and we just about managed that. But it took an, a huge amount of advanced planning and, a, and you know, visits by me to a lot of these peripheral hospitals in the, in the lead up to the go live. But, but in terms of preparation, yeah. I, think, I think a steering, a steering group with good representation and regular meetings, I would say, helped us enormously. And I'd strongly recommend anyone else to, to do the same. Yeah, to have people involved from multiple departments and especially as you mentioned with the administrative side, that is so hugely important because how yeah. everything is structured and is really going to with using digital tools. Um, you know, are there areas of clinical genetics that you see being replaced by digital tools? I'm thinking of like the chatbots now available video reviews, result portals. Do you see any of this really just swing over to be completely with digital tools? Sorry, just could you just repeat that? It, I lost you a bit for a second. Sure. So just looking at what area of clinical could be replaced by digital tools, about the chatbots, video over result portal. Yeah, those are, those are good ones. Um, just go digital. Yeah, you're breaking up a bit, Kira. So maybe put put a couple of thoughts oh, so in the sorry. chat. One thing, you know, obviously that's pertinent to our hosts for this is pedigrees, drawing family trees. Um, and that's something I've been interested in for, for quite a long time. Uh, we, we had a very unsatisfactory hybrid system of electronic records and paper records for our pedigrees. So we, we have used a system called TrackGene, which is as an Australian company that um, provides services uh, in that specific area, pedigree drawing with a few add-ons. And um, we did look at phenotypes actually, but so far, the, uh, we, because we've historically used TrackGene, we're trying to, trying to stick with that. Um, and um, the the other the other interesting point about all of that is that um, Epic do also provide a pedigree drawing tool. Um, we looked at that uh, quite carefully with them, and we felt, for reasons I'd be happy to discuss later, it wasn't it wasn't suitable for us. So we're now embarking on a piece of work which I'm quite which I'm excited about, which is to is to formulate a group of stakeholders, which includes representation from Epic, from TrackGene, 
from our own service and from our hospital IT department to try to make the interface between TrackGene and Epic more seamless. And we feel that that is something that we can, we can very usefully do and it will, um, it, it will really improve uh, the way that we work. Um, so Kerry mentioned a couple of other digital tools. So we use, we use video software um, for our um, patient appointments. And, you know, we have discussed, and I'm sure other places have discussed, and we don't have any special expertise in this, but clearly, you know, especially with distances involved to some of our um, patients, you know, we are looking to explore the potential for replacement of face-to-face -face consults with some online ones. That said, I, I really, at this point, feel, feel a lot of sympathy for my genetic counsellor colleagues because the decision was taken in our service that they would, because the type of consult that they do perhaps lends itself a bit more to online and not face-to-face, -face, simply because they don't usually carry out physical examinations, they, they have essentially suspended their face-to-face -face service and are doing everything online but the, the feedback that I'm getting from that is that they, they're, not, they're not very happy with it. They don't like it. And, um, <laughs> you know, some people have hinted that, some of our genetic counts have hinted that if, if, that, if it stays like that, they're not sure they want to carry on. And, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear what other thoughts other people have about that. Yeah, it's certainly different from my experience counseling patients, you know, through a platform like this, where we're just seeing each other over video chat. And I think one of the big parts of that is just their concentration during the session. Um, you know, something I found is if, you know, I work in prenatal in times, there's something that's more challenging and just being able to have the psychosocial part is really challenging challenging. Yeah. I think if you're looking to connect with patients and, you know, being able to, you know, work on that in terms of the information, you can get the information across, but it's more of the, the human side of it. That's certainly more difficult. Um, just looking at how we're, you know, shifting over for a lot of things becoming more digital. Have you seen that there's a difference in error rates and accuracy between, you know, our old school using paper and now, with this digital, is there a difference there? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And it, it's it's actually at this point a bit difficult to answer because we really are, we're still within the first three months of go live. And you know, there there are always going to be errors and mistakes during that time period, and we just need it to bed down a bit. You know, we I think we've we've avoided um, any any really for, for the most part any really serious errors. That the was there was one which was actually I think more down to human error than down to any issue with the electronic patient record. Um, for me, it's very it's very interesting to go from effectively a paper only service, which is still the case for quite a few services in the UK, I don't know about the US, maybe may fewer, um, but to switch over entirely to an electronic system is, is definitely bringing changes. And, and really, it's, it's, it's too difficult to answer that question right now. I mean, one, one thing I could perhaps highlight 
which is which is relevant to people i think maybe more in the uk is that the the genetic record um the the the, the, the record that we previously kept that was a paper record was in fact a family file and it was i mean some of these things are huge lever arch files with hundreds of pages and hundreds and you know maybe a couple of dozen sections for different individuals within that family file right and of course um there's a massive cultural shift to go from that to essentially using a single electronic patient record now what we've what we've tried to do is to is to link family members by assigning a specific family number to relatives within the same family so that we can we can pull out all the members of that family who have the same record uh, who, are, who are part of the same family we can look at them <clears throat> but it it it's really very different it's a very different way of working now and, and we have we have quite a lot of debate about what 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 information that previously we were happy to write in a family file we now would consider writing in an individual patient file which is not exclusive to our own service but is now visible to every other clinician working in our hospital it, it's a huge cultural change and we're, st we're still getting to grips with it i see there's someone uh, on from great ormond street hospital in london and you know they 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 that GOS have got more experience of this than we have, and I know they've grappled with the same issue. Yeah, certainly we're in a unique area of medicine where we don't just have information on the patient, but rather an entire family when it comes to gathering that family health history information. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to see how that is going to play a role in terms of how we're putting that into a digital form and keeping it attached to that patient, but also protecting the privacy of other family members. So the way yeah. you're doing it from what I'm understanding is you're assigning a number to the family in general, and then that number follows people in their individual yeah, like exactly. medical charts. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, but the issue is perhaps also more to do with the fact that and, and I must admit, I found I've always found this unsatisfactory is that because we keep our own or we previously kept our own paper records, which were never seen by anyone else outside our service, outside clinical genetics, we, we were really quite insulated from the rest of the hospital. And, uh, you know, and increasingly there were there are tensions there, for example, with cardiologists running joint cardiology genetics meetings, cancer services wanting to know information about the genetic risk for the patients that they see. I mean, of course, you know, we communicate with these people. We, we write letters to them. We've always done that. And that, you know, that continues. But certainly some initial feedback is that, for me, I think, is that, First of all, communication with other specialists within our hospital has improved a lot using, using EPIC. So we're able to discuss patients within the record. That, that, and that, that, that was previously done by email. And we were, we were referring to our own paper notes and they were referring to their paper notes. And there wasn't a great deal of meeting in the middle. I think that is a huge improvement. Um, but, but this- And so within EPIC, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Can you ask your question? Um, so I was just wondering, so within Epic, because that's also, um, you know, a software that a lot of people in 
America uses well in terms of, you know, yeah. medical information. Um, how does the pedigree tool look like in there? How are you using that? Well, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And in fact, we, in our meetings with Epic uh, in the lead up, we, we had several meetings where the, their pedigree tool was demonstrated to us. And those, who, those people who use Epic will be aware that um, there, are, there, are, there are certain parts of the Epic record that they mandate are visible to anyone who wishes, any, any clinic, clinical person or who's entitled to look in the record are visible to everyone. And that, that's things like past medical history, drug history, and, and so on. Um, and the issue, um, the issue for us was that, the, that we put information on those pedigrees that is really quite personal to named relatives, but is not something that we feel just through patient confidentiality, we can put into an individual record I mean, it, uh, you, you can see that it's, it's it, it poses a real difficulty, <laughs> and we we didn't we we looked at it and felt that you know it wasn't it wasn't going to be acceptable, and that is why. And it's for the same reason. Or I mean, actually, their pedigree drawing software is a relatively new feature that were, I think was not available when other other UK genetic services were looking at it. But we I think we were the first to have the opportunity to look at it, and we felt. But really, for that reason, um, it wasn't going to work. And we we asked them if we could make the pedigree. We could have a, a version of the pedigree that was private to our service, which was I thought was a reasonable request. But um, certainly, yeah. Uh, you know, when when you're dealing with these people, you know, you you quickly learn that there are there are some issues on which you are not going to make any progress whatsoever and and that that was one of them there, there was no chance of getting a sort of bespoke version of their pedigree that would that would be just for our service and that's why we you know we had to look elsewhere yeah that's a, that's a good thing to highlight in terms of what people should be looking at for pedigree drawing tools to see what their requirements are and then what tools that are out there are going to meet those requirements for so for you guys customizing who had access to this was a deal breaker what are some other aspects that healthcare providers should be looking at in terms of what their pedigree drawing software should include what would be your your top few like features yeah well <clears throat> i think i think the first thing to say is that is that because of the issue I've just mentioned, you you are you are going to need to use an external pedigree drawing software, okay? You, because you can't use the internal Epic one. So the next question that immediately comes up is, what is the degree of interface between that pedigree tool and and Epic that you can have? Because clearly you want there to be some interface. You you don't want them to be completely separate. I mean, for example, you know. In, in the ideal world, you would have a situation where you'd have the pedigree in the pedigree drawing software open in front of you and it would be live. So you would click on an individual in that pedigree and if there was an epic record for that individual, it would take you straight to it. And that is on my wish list for the work that we're going to be doing with TrackGene. The, the other thing is that um, you, you want 
you want some flexibility in terms clearly in terms of how much data you or information you can put in under each individual on the pedigree so you know particularly say with the cancer ones you want to be able to specify the precise cancer diagnosis and the age of diagnosis and various other things and and you know depending on the condition that you're talking about you you, you want so you almost need a free text box that you can add information to and that i mentioned that because that, that is not available in the pedigree software that we're currently using and i think it's something that needs to be um, so I, I think those are some thoughts about about what you need there. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are good ones to think through. And it's really going to depend on what specialty you're in. As you said, you know, those would be aspects for cancer and pediatric being able to put in all developmental milestones or different areas there that, yeah. you know, when we're drawing a pedigree, we're writing in a lot of extra information. You do. But I think um, You also, I think, I think most of us would, would, would say that when we're, let's say we are taking a pedigree in a, um, let's say a developmental condition, which is, which is heritable. So there might be other affected individuals that you, you've got a, you've got a choice between writing a lot of stuff on the pedigree or writing it as part of a clinical note. And I think traditionally, a lot of us have tended to have a sort of family history section within the clinical note and documented quite a lot of stuff there. So I, I think you can overburden the pedigree with, with too much detail and lose, perhaps lose a little bit of the visual usefulness of it if you do that. Um, but it, th there is a balance to be struck there for, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and I think another aspect that I'm looking at in terms of digitizing pedigrees is the ability to speed up research. I mean, how have you seen this in the field now that we have more pedigrees that are in this digital form? How do you see this impacting research either that you've already seen or that you foresee in the, in the near future? Yeah, well, I should first of all say I'm, I'm, not, I'm not so research active now. I've found all this digital stuff to be fairly consuming and that's, that's what I'm main, mainly focused on at the moment. Um, I think the the other issue about pedigrees and research is that, and you know, we we had a we had a query about this recently in our department from from an ENT researcher who was conducting research on thyroid cancer, and he was he was wanting us to share pedigree information, and you know clearly a, a major issue is is what information you're permitted to share, and it's you know it's totally dependent on. Um, you know the consent form that was signed at the time that the patient was signed up to the research project and and often may, maybe usually and unless it's a fairly unusual project um really nothing is said about what what can be collected in terms of family history for a given research project so um i guess maybe just a useful feature for a pedigree is to be able to completely anonymize it so that uh, which which most pedigree drawing softwares will do, so that you can um, you can perhaps share some information on an anonymized basis. But yeah, it's it's a it's a, this is a bit of a minefield in the research area because you 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 can come up against that question of the confidentiality of the medical information of the relatives of the patient who's being um, recruited. So it seems like we almost need to start from 
the beginning and include this more in consent forms so that it's more standardized that your medical history information can be shared with research so that you are covered and yeah. able to do that, which is going to take yeah. some time to do, but I imagine that will be one of the first yeah. steps in order to achieve this. I, I, it's true. I mean, most of the research projects that I was ever involved in really um, focused on a given individual and didn't delve too much into their family history. And we, we had something in the UK called the 100,000 Genomes Project, which was a little bit of a, a mix of, of clinical, um, clinical genetic testing and it had elements of research. And that, interestingly, that did involve collecting multiple individuals from the same family. But of, but of course, they were, they, were, they were very carefully individually consented, right? So, so each person from, so you might have four or five individuals, each with the same condition within the same family or extended family. They were recruited to that project, but quite rightly, anyone who was you know, participating, and of course it involved giving samples. So, you, you know, you had to consent each individual. I, I think, you know, this, this whole idea of, you know, the family history and research is, is, a, is a difficult one. And this, the safest territory to be on is if you want to delve further into the family, you, you just have to be specific and state which family member you're interested in and recruit them as well. <clears throat> and that ends up being quite time consuming because oh, you're not just doing is. a blanket statement that, yeah. I mean, to get yeah. all that information and all of the consent, yeah. that is a lot of, you know, someone's time yeah. in the healthcare field. It is. And, and actually, you've just reminded me that, you know, that that whole issue nearly broke the, the, the um, database system within the 100,000 Genomes Project because they ended up trying to recruit individuals from the same family who were geographically in very different parts of the country and for some reason the IT infrastructure just couldn't deal with that it was horrendous it was absolutely horrendous um, and we had to design various workarounds to help us get there but it, it, it was very time consuming and another aspect of this is patients having access to information and, you know, yeah. with this being in a more digital forum of patients wanting to say, well, I'd like access to my medical chart. Yeah, yeah. How do you see this playing a role? I mean, what ways do you see patients being able to access or is there going to be areas where we say, you know, this is too much information or, you know, now they're accessing notes that are going between doctors. I mean, how do you see this being filtered in patients actually being able to access their information? Well, maybe you won't be surprised that I'm a, I'm a, in, in fact, I'm a, I'm a, a clear outlier in my own service for making information available to as, as much information as possible available to patients and consulting them wherever we can. The, there's a, there's a, a nice feature in Epic is a, a patient portal, um, which we're, we're still getting to grips with using actually, um, but it's called my chart, I think. And it's, uh, the, the patients are signed up to it quite straightforwardly by receiving a text message or an email. And then they, they have a presence within their own record but of course they can't see everything within the record. And essentially my understanding is that you can, you can place items from within the patient record into that portal. And, and it, you know, it saves 
you know, because we, we still send out a lot of po letters by post and, you know, it really surprises me how much paper we're still generating. Um, but obviously patients on that portal, it's, it's, it's immediate um, and it uh, doesn't cost anything and it's highly convenient for the patients. A lot of them, I'm sure the younger ones don't really want to get paper anyway. They'd be, they'd be much happier getting stuff electronically. So, um, so I, I, see, I see that as um, a very good feature. And one thing that I would love to see in that, again, you know, we send out paper to patients to ask them to write down the information that, you know, this blows my mind that we do this. So we have a big form and, and it's got, you know, who are your parents, who are your brothers, who are your sisters? And we send it out in the post and then they fill it all out. These are all my relatives. And then they send the paper version back to us and we employ people in our department, um, more than one person to, to get that information off the paper and into the electronic pedigree. Whereas surely, you know, it should be possible to design a form within the patient portal, which they fill out and which will, which will generate the pedigree within the pedigree drawing software without the need for an intermediary. And, you know, talking about errors, that, that, that team of people who do that transcribing do make errors, sometimes quite embarrassing ones like incorrect assignment of gender or inc incorrect assignment of whether they're alive or deceased. And, and if you've got this pedigree in front of you and you just you mentioned that and they say, no, that's wrong, it, and it's been incorrectly copied from the form, it is not a good look. And um, yeah, I do, I do feel strongly about this, as you can probably tell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's it's such a waste of time to have people write it and then reading handwriting. I mean, it just, it feels like, you know, is this 2021 or not? Um, and yeah. it's, it's great. Phenotips yeah. does have this feature where patients can answer a questionnaire ahead of time so that you have that information in a digital format. And I mean, yeah. there's so many errors that can happen along the way, as you mentioned. Yeah. So it's something that, yeah. you know, I would expect we're going to be moving forward to, but I mean, it, it takes time to adopt this, but certainly it's like the technology's there and it's just being able to get that into motion. I, I know phenotypes have, and that was, you know, we, we, as I say, we did look at phenotypes and they, they are, I've discussed this with, um, oh, the, your CEO of phenotypes, I can't just think of his name. I know he's very keen on that and, you know, rightly so. Yeah, certainly. And I think the other thing you mentioned before was just patients having access to their medical information of, you know, getting records and information like that. How much time do we spend, you know, patients asking an institution, can you send my medical records to this place? Yeah. Whereas if they can have yeah. access themselves, they can download it, send it as they so wish. Yeah. Um, one area that, you know, I find that's interesting, even for me practicing is, you know, patients having access to different portals through genetic testing and different companies that I'm ordering from the getting portals directly from them and setting up that I'm contacting them with their results before they're getting it from that company. So is that something that, you know, within Epic, are patients getting their information directly from their healthcare, per, healthcare provider in terms of results, or are they able to see those results ahead of time? Do you know how that workflow is? Well, they, the patients are completely reliant on the, the genetic counselor or the clinician who ordered the test to, to feed that test result back to them. And it's, it's carried out, all the tests are carried out through a network of 
NHS testing laboratories. And that may not be exactly the same in the States. I, I'm sure, I dare say you use quite a number of private providers and possibly Correct. patients can communicate directly with them. Is that how it goes? Yes. So it's, there's a lot of different, you know, they can access the company, they can access their healthcare provider. So certainly it's a different setup. Yeah. Right. That's, that's, it's that's interesting how different it is, right? That's a very alien concept to me. I mean, uh, yeah. I have to, I have to stop and think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah. We, we, you know, um, we kind of guard this genetic, we maybe over guard this genetic information that we get, you know, so, so there is no prospect whatsoever of a UK clinical genetics patient contacting a laboratory and getting them to part with any genetic information about them. They will always say that it has to go back to them via their genetic counsellor or, or geneticist. Yeah. Yeah. And just a quick note how, you know, in terms of like my experience of um, genetic counselors can set up their accounts differently. So if they say it's a low risk negative result that's happening, that that automatically gets re released 48 hours later. So for me, I can contact the patient within that 48 hours so that they, they are hearing from me first before they have the results. And then oh, anything that's abnormal, obviously, is not going to be sent to the patient. I need to personally release that. Um, so okay. I don't know how I can't speak for everybody, but in terms of me working in um, outside of New York City in the prenatal space, um, that's kind of how we have it set up. But it's certainly interesting to see if that's going to shift and just in terms of giving results and having that information yeah. of, you know, how involved are healthcare providers like going to be in the future? I mean, I, I know that what all my colleagues would say would be that you know, we're there to provide interpretation of the test result. And that, that is not necessarily immediately apparent from, you know, the formal report right. that gives out. I mean, some of the, I've seen some reports from the US and they, they can run to a number of pages. Oh, it's much longer than sometimes <laughs> I think it needs to be, yes. <laughs> so that, that's hard for the patients, isn't it? It is. It's not always in plain English. Like, you know, we're reading through yeah. and like trying to figure out, okay, like let's, let's look at this percent here. Oh, that's what that means. And yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Another area I wanted to pick your brain on was what yeah. other areas of genetics that you see digital tools being used in terms of risk models. So that's kind of going back to, we were talking about cancer earlier. Um, there's yeah. a lot of risk models in terms of the risk for someone to develop cancer. And there's been a lot that have been developed do you see this evolving more so now that we're in this digital tool era and maybe expanding into other areas of yeah. genetics and not just focused on the cancer side? Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm not, I'm not best placed to answer that. I'm sorry. Um, I know I, I'm a little bit of an outsider to the cancer genetics field. I do, I do relatively little of that, but it, it's always struck me as strange that there isn't a, a kind of uniform approach to risk models. Some, some departments will use models such as one that we have in the UK called Bodicea. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a Manchester scoring system that's used. Other departments tend not to use them. And I've, uh, and then the, the, other, the, the, the other side to this is the polygenic risk score prediction models as well which are still, I would say, regarded with some suspicion and as controversial in, in the UK. So there's been no widespread uptake of those as yet. 
Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how that's going to evolve as well, because we're such at an infancy point with polygenic risk scores that I imagine yeah. that's going to get much better in the next five, 10 years. I, I agree. And I, I think it's fascinating. And, you know, I, I think, again, we should embrace it. You know, anything that can inform someone's risk of getting breast cancer, say, is, is, is going to be, it's going to be useful. Um, yeah. And are there any other recent additions to digital tools that we haven't talked about um, that you've either used personally or seen really helping in terms of clinical genetics um, and people working in the field? I guess we just, I just mentioned in passing about, it's not really a, a genetic specific tool, but a voice recognition I think is very powerful. And um, there are a lot of efficiencies there that we can draw on to, to help us. Um, the other, the other thing in the clinical setting, um, digital photography, there's, there's a very slick app available within Epic whereby you know, we take photos of some of the pediatric cases that are referred to us. Um, and it is remarkable, you, you, you open the app on your phone, open the patient within the app, take a photo of the patient and you get all the consent and everything. And, and, it, and it, goes straight, it goes straight into the record. And what's interesting, and there's been a lot of debate about this, which, which I, I do think is fascinating. So, so the photo does not go onto your phone. It, it completely bypasses the phone and goes straight into the um, epic record. But people, I think, have been rightly concerned to think that patients will see you taking photos on, on your phone and think that, that you're going to be walking around with a, the photo of their child on your phone, even, even if you explain it to them. And, and some of my colleagues have just expressed the idea that people, some people will, again, understandably be nervous about all of this just because, you know, it's a digital photo that's going somewhere. They don't really know where. Um, it's, it's a difficult area because you know, digital photography and the internet <laughs> sometimes, you know, created issues. Yeah, certainly. I think that's one area of just protecting patients' data and having them understand exactly what's going to be used with it. And yeah. obviously there's been a lot of data breaches over the years. And, you yeah. know, even with some genetic testing companies. And so I think that's one that, you know, is on people's minds in terms of, okay, well, you're saying it's secure. How secure is yeah. it? Um, what are these conversations looking like with patients in terms of explaining to them those security features and just what we do have in place? Well, I, I've had conversations with patients about it. And, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I report my experience in our, say, in our weekly departmental meeting with all of my colleagues, and someone else will supposedly be reporting the same thing but with with quite a different slant on it which often seems to be a slant that goes with their their take on it so so my feeling is that when i explain it to the patient they understand it and they understand that the medical electronic record is confidential and it's um the photograph will not go outside that record under any circumstances without their permission but then i have a colleague who has perhaps a naturally greater suspicion about all of this stuff, who will report that some of his patients that have explained it to 
are, are suspicious of it and are reluctant to, to give their consent to, to have it done. So, I mean, clearly there is going to be variation in the way people respond and, and maybe, you know, you know, younger people who, have, who use Instagram and Facebook and all the rest of it all the time, may, maybe are not going to be, you know, they, they seem to take photos of it by kids. They just take photos of each other and put them on Snapchat or something all the time. Yeah. They don't even think about it <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, they don't. So it's it's a, it's strange. There's there's a lot of variation in views out there. Yeah, and I just wanted to take a moment for people that are tuning in live. If you have questions for Dr. Shaw Smith, certainly put them in the Q&A feature at the bottom of your Zoom there. Um, and we're gonna get to those in just a couple of minutes. I have a couple other questions that I wanted to ask him before we do that. Um, so before we get to our you know, viewer and listener questions, what are your advice for genetic departments that are looking to adopt digital tools? What are the first steps? We kind of talked about, you know, at the beginning of the recording here of your experience of, you know, in 2020, switching over and using a lot of digital tools from that experience and for people that are tuning in to figure out those first steps. What is your advice? What would those first few steps be? Okay. Um, so, you know, clearly what we've been through is, is, a, is a massive change going from a, a completely paper-based, family-based um, system to a completely electronic, individual patient-based system. And um, as, as I said earlier, that, that, that requires a lot, a lot of planning. That is a very, very big, it's a massive cultural change. I, I can't quite believe that we've survived it, actually. Um, you know, it, it needed a lot. It's a of, huge undertaking. It was a lot of work, a lot of preparation and a lot of meetings and a lot of trying to resolve conflicts, you know, within the department about what, what people felt about certain things. I mean, I mean, one example I've not even mentioned is, you know, you know with, this, with this move from um, a family record to an individual record, we, we were very concerned about confidentiality. And there's a feature within Epic called Break the Glass where if you go into, let's say a, a patient within the hospital has got a set of genetic records, anything that's attached to that genetic record, any clinician from outside our service who wants to go into it, gets, a, gets a, an alert, a warning that says, you're, you're not allowed to go into this um, uh, unless, unless you can make a, a case and you're going into it will we'll have been um, audit trailed. So we'll, we know who you are. And um, it, it's yeah you know, that system is in place, and it's it's really unsatisfactory for lots of reasons. Anyway, I got sidetracked there. Sorry, but I, I did want to mention that because it's it just it just illustrates you know it just illustrates the pitfalls. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I wanted to get to one of our um, listener questions here. What is your view on storing patient data in the cloud? Do you think it's inevitable that all patient data will eventually yeah. be stored in the cloud as it opposed is. to the hospital? It, it, it is. It is cloud-based. And I know phenotypes have cloud-based uh, servers for their information. And I, I know from conversations with phenotypes that that, that, is, that is considered to be more efficient and um, as secure, although I'm, I'm by no means an expert in that. But, um, you know, you know, 
and, and again, I'm not an expert in data breaches either, um, but I, I know that the, that no system of this kind is can be considered to be invulnerable to to being hacked into and and some hospital electronic record systems including in the us have been hacked into and causes an immense amount of trouble um but that's that's not my pay grade to think about that kind of stuff yeah and we have another question that's kind of along similar lines what is your view on the statement no medical information is completely secure and i think you kind of just answered that of saying no, that we not. really can't see any yeah. say anything is secure yeah. i think but there's certainly different I, I levels think, to it i just think we are we are we are storing up potential enormous vulnerability with with the, this way of working um and i know there's been uh, I read about a data breach in the US recently that was quite far reaching. I, I can't remember the name of the company, but, but the point was that it was a company that provided IT services across a broad range of industry, including hospitals and the hospital electronic records. And I know there are, there are experts who have sounded warnings about this and we, we are vulnerable to it. And we, we just need, you know, well-informed, clever people on our side to plan for such breaches because they will happen. Yeah, and protecting information, even when it's being stored to have ways that it's, you know, patient names are not exactly with it there, that there's, you know, different like numbers assigned to it yeah. um, and, and looking at different ways that we can protect that information. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to read another one that's not necessarily a question, but just a comment, um, a remark about the, the pedigree digitalizing within Epic. Um, this person says, in the five years experience with genetics and Epic, it appeared that several months after introducing Epic and a sophisticated pedigree software tool attached to it, which I think is what you were talking about earlier, people yeah. referred to drawing a pedigree on a blank page and dating it, having it scanned into Epic, and then the next consultation, <laughs> it was printed out, updated, and then scanned in again, 100%, uh, 100 times less complicated and expensive, and it worked well. What are your thoughts in terms of people that are doing it this way? Is this a good way to get around it? I mean, it's not quite a digital pedigree. It's somewhere in the middle there. I, I fully understand anyone who would rather have a sheet of paper with a pedigree on it in front of them in the clinic. Um, it's easier. What I don't know is that, that if, if that just reflects, um, you know, the, the long-term practice of people like me, I, I suspect that a person who'd never been used to drawing pedigrees on paper but was brought up using electronic pedigrees would would be fine and you know the only issue with track I, I think the track gene pedigree tool is okay and I'd be happy to use it in the clinic the problem we're trying to fix at the moment is it's just so slow when you use it outside the hospital and we really want to fix that so um the, there's some really interesting issues there but I I, I you know Paper pedigrees are, they, they're, they're, they're fine, you know, really. Yeah, and I would definitely recommend people to check out the, the phenotypes one because it is very quick and easy to use. It is easy um, especially, to use, yeah. yeah. for, you know, some people, you know, in other webinars that we've talked to people and they ask, well, is it going to be as quick? I'm not used to doing that. Give it a couple goes with just like a family you have in your head, either from media or book series you're reading or movies or something and go through and do it and you'll see how easy it is and intuitive to use. Um, so I think it's it's worth trying out a couple times and maybe trying it with a patient um, and seeing how it is. Um, we have another yeah. question submitted. It says, are you familiar with 
ETA for drawing pedigrees, how does that compare to phenotypes and the Australian one you've mentioned? I, I missed the name. What was it? Uh, the Invite drawing pedigrees and no, just seeing Sorry. if you're familiar with that. Um, Invite, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've I've used this one before and I can't quite recall um, exactly how yeah. it worked or how it compares the name is, to phenotypes. I've come across it. I've, I've, not, I've not used it. Um, I think to give the, in terms of a comparison between phenotypes and track gene, um, I would say simply that phenotypes is much slicker, but it is a lot more expensive as well, <laughs> probably for that reason. Yeah, so certainly a lot of things to compare and seeing, you know, what other features are included because everything's going to be a little bit different. Yeah. Um, not only yeah. just like how you're using it, but yeah. um, phenotypes having like the symptom yeah. capture and, you know, other tools with that. Yeah. So well, one thing about phenotypes that I I'm not sure what they feel about this, but you sometimes get the impression that they are trying to set phenotypes up as a complete electronic record for um, for, for, for patient records. Whereas I think probably most, most clinic, clinicians like me would not, would not expect that. Uh, and of course, you know, we, as, I've, as I've emphasized throughout this, what we want is good communication with clinical colleagues throughout the rest of the hospital. And so you, you are stuck with using the system that you're all the other specialties in your hospital are using you you've got to go with that you can't you can't sort of go it alone otherwise you end up with a kind of silo system that i was talking about before where there's just not good communication because you're using different records and i would i would never advocate that i think you know it's it's really there there are many advantages to better integration with the specialists outside outside clinical genetics within your hospital um, I mean, another discussion that we've had is, so when we have MDTs, we discuss a, a variant of uncertain significance, say, and we don't, we, do, we just don't know what, whether it's the cause of the phenotype or not. And we, we sort of have a, a discussion with colleagues. Some of my, and I mean colleagues um, from the laboratory and maybe from an outside specialty as well. Some of my colleagues felt really strongly that um, that sort of discussion should be hidden from view because <laughs> it was potentially dangerous because people would misinterpret or get wrong or take information out of it that they that they shouldn't have done or that was um, incorrectly interpreted. I I disagree with that. I think you know let's let's be open about these meetings that we're having. Uh, let's try and educate people out there because we spend a lot of time complaining about how ignorant people are about genetics who are not geneticists. And we, we, should, we should be doing everything we can to educate them, in my view, just a little bit of soapbox there. And if patients have questions, then it's like they can ask their healthcare provider and be more engaged in you know, their own healthcare. So I, I, I agree with you on that. I, I think you know, letting patients yeah. know about you know, VUSs and so that I, they I'm, can also track it. Well, yeah, I wasn't talking about patients then. I was talking about non-genetic specialists like pediatricians or cardiologists. Um, I mean, that's a whole different question about whether you'd want a patient to be privy to an MDT discussion about their variant. I mean, you know, in terms of patient-centered care, I think there's a guy in the States or Canada who's really huge on this. And I, I read one of his pieces. I, I just love everything he says. 
you know, we need to be sharing more stuff with the patient, not less. And we need to view the record as the patient's record, not our record. It's their information. And, and the idea that we would sort of jealously guard them from looking at it just, just feels all wrong to me. But yeah. anyway. I know yeah. with that. <laughs> I think we're on the same page there, but yeah, we have time for one more question before we sign off. Um, this question right. reads, I'm aware of an app that can be used for pedigree drawing where, it, where a patient is prompted to download an app, input family history, and then this is sent to the GC and a pedigree is automatically drawn, yeah. which also uh, Phenotips does that. So maybe they're referring to yeah. something else. Um, so they asked any thoughts on this for future use in uh, clinical genetics? We should, it's what we should be doing. We absolutely should be doing it. And we need a good, we need a robust system that will enable us to do that. And um, it will save, it, well, for all the reasons I outlined earlier, it would just be better. I think years from now, someone's going to watch this back and be like, wait, we didn't used to do that before. And it's going to be yeah, like standard but, for people. Yeah, that's yeah. true. But from, from where we are now, that's, that's actually quite a big ask to do that. You know, the technology somehow doesn't feel like it's quite there yet, but it, uh, yeah, it should be in the future for sure. Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you for everybody that is tuning in. Um, thank you for, you know, joining us today. Um, Dr. Shaw Smith, thank you so much for just bestowing so much information and letting me pick your brain about all these topics. It's just such a treat to be able to hear all your insight today. So really appreciate you coming on. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks again. Thanks for the invite. And for everybody, uh, you will see a feedback link emailed to you. Please take a minute to offer your feedback for today's webinar. And you can also pick topics that you'd like to see in upcoming series. The email will also include a link to the Phenotip Speaker Series page where you can sign up to receive alerts on upcoming sessions. Our next webinar is gonna be in February and the topic is improving patient experience. So if you also have not signed up for that, you can go to phenotips.com, click the stories tab, and then the speaker series is gonna pop up on the drop-down menu. You can view all our installments there from last year and all the ones so far for this year. Um, so definitely check that out, phenotips.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you may also like my podcast, search DNA Today on social media and podcast players, or just go to dnapodcast.com. Uh, and Dr. Shaw Smith, do you wanna include uh, your website for people to learn more about digital tools and genetics? Yeah, I, um, I, the, I, did, I did write a blog for a, a few years, but it's, I've not added to it and I do plan to add to it. So um, I'm happy for you to add it on the understanding that there's some not very up-to-date stuff there. I've got quite a few ones that I'd like to add to it in the future. So there we go. All right, sounds good. And we'll make sure to include Include all the links that we've mentioned today in the blog post for this episode. So again, everything's going to be at phenotips.com. So thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. And definitely look out for the next webinar. Again, that's going to be in February. And the topic is improving patient experience. So again, thank you so much, Dr. Shaw Smith. It really, you're such a wealth of knowledge with this. So all right. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in, everybody. We've really appreciated having you today. Okay, bye. Bye.